welcome to Inside the Bradfield Centre. My name's James Parton and I'm the Managing Director of the Bradfield Centre. And I'm Adelina Chalmers. I'm known as the Geek Whisperer because I bridge the gap between product and engineering. Joining us on today's episode is Uday Padke, the Chief Executive of the Triple Chasm Company. So this one's going to be a good one, I think, as, as they tend to be. Um, I'm really looking forward to talking to Uday about the uh, actually the origin story of the Bradfield Centre, because Uday was involved in the very early conversations inside Trinity College about the need for the centre. So we can we can peek behind the curtain and see some of the history behind the place. For me, also, I'd be interested to understand a bit more about um, the triple chasm model he developed and what steps uh, could he share. Um, with with us and the the Bradford Centre members that he discovered from his extensive research about growth and what how, what helps companies grow. Yeah, and it ties together nicely with what we do at the Bradfield Centre because the Triple Chasm model is all about helping companies scale uh, and that's obviously what we're trying to do at the Bradfield. So, you know, it's going to be really interesting to talk to Uday about understanding where those challenges are and maybe, uh, Adelina, you can ask him for your top tips for Bradfield Centre members. we have Uday, who runs a company called Cartesia. Uday, would you mind giving us a little bit about your background and telling us effectively who you are? Yeah, nice to be talking to you, Adelina. Um, it's, it's quite interesting to have this conversation um, uh, with the people at the Bradfield, uh, because I, in fact, started my career uh, by reading engineering at Trinity, uh, which, of course, is uh, behind the Bradfield Center. So I was an undergraduate at Trinity, uh, where I read engineering and engineering maths, engineering sciences. And then I had an early career in academia, as uh, many people do, um, in North America and ending up uh, teaching history and philosophy of science at the University of Sussex uh, on the South Coast. And so, if you like, that was the academic phase of my career. I then moved back to the Cambridge area and was involved um, in the whole Cambridge consulting ecosystem. Um, in the late 70s, early 80s, 90s, up to even now, uh, Cambridge has had a uh, large number of consulting companies who have basically been building new products, new services. So the consulting companies in Cambridge tended to focus on turning innovation into new products and services, mainly for large corporates. So I spent about 20 years of my life doing that. And in the late 1990s, I set up Cartesia because I realized that uh, providing advice and helping to build new products wasn't enough. I wanted to get involved in building complete companies and building new value and building real commercial value. So so that's that's uh, like a brief overview of, of, of my journey so far, Adelina. So, uh, Uday, what I'm really kind of fascinated to talk to you about is the, the history of the Bradfield Centre, because, you know, we've, we're uh, nearly a couple of months into this podcast series now, and we talk about the present all the time, you know, the, the companies that are based in the building and uh, the organisations that we partner with, but we haven't actually spent any time looking back into the, the history books about the origin of the Bradfield Centre. So, you were there at that, at, at that time in the college, so why don't you walk us through how the Bradfield Centre concept came about? 
So I'm sure, um, like many of these stories, you will get as many versions as there are a number of people um, for how things got going. Uh, but I recall a very interesting conversation in the Master's Lodge in Trinity. I think it was about 2014 uh, or 2015, probably 2014, um, where uh, had a meeting after a dinner with the, with the then Master, uh, Sir Greg Winter, and he talked about how Trinity was looking at creating some kind of uh, center on the Science Park, uh, which at that time was described loosely as an accelerator. And there were several people there, including me, who talked about the fact that uh, this um, new initiative needed to be about more than just creating physical space or providing resources for companies to start and grow. Uh, we suggested that this could, in fact, be uh, the key enabling component to help build a new ecosystem um, on the Science Park and more broadly in Cambridge. And subsequently, I was involved uh, from time to time in discussions as this conceptual development plan progressed until uh, the point at which um, the centre as it's conceived today uh, were, went out to tender, if you like, for building. And... Um, and James and you and your colleagues eventually appeared, I think it was in 2017, uh, to bring, bring this building to life. So the key thing I remember was our point was, think of this as a way of building an ecosystem, not just about uh, providing a place, a physical place with resources. So how close, having, as the centre's now around three years old, how close to the original vision do you think it's, uh, it's you know, um, become? No, I think it's, it's, uh, it's done a remarkable job in my view because there were several things we said when we had these conversations. One of those key points was to make this uh, center, this, this nodal point, a, a very open place. In other words, the whole idea was that we needed to be open to the wider ecosystem. Too many of these interventions in the academic institutions around the UK and around the world have tended to be closed book, where they cater for an internal dialogue uh, amongst the people who are already as part of that system. And so one of the critical things, you know, manifested in something as simple as a cafe being open to the external public um, is very, very important because what it did was it kind of opened up the Bradfield to say, we are here and we are part of the community and, and we invite you in. Yeah, absolutely. We've always had that kind of open mindset and that collaborative mindset rather than a kind of closed doors approach. And, and then the other thing, of course, was once you have that, then you have to try and create some of those simple structures around which you can encourage the interactions of anything you can do to encourage interaction between companies. Uh, we're all, all in the same space and also interactions between larger companies, mature, well-established companies who are looking to tap into innovation. If I may add actually something about the Bradfield, for me, uh, what impresses me most about it is it's the culture that I think you guys have been able to create, you know, James and the team, because other other places around Cambridge uh, just don't seem as open as, you know, think about it, the cafe is accessible, not to, just to members, but to people from our, from around the Science Park who can come and have lunch there. You know, that's that creates a different dynamic, I think, in the building. And I, I agree. I think it's a very special place. Um, in Cambridge, and I'm certainly absolutely delighted. Um, it, it has appeared on the Science Park, um, but that's you know that's my opinion. So, so it's, it's interesting, Adelina. Your point about culture is absolutely critical because 
you know, innovation um, thrives in a culture of openness and open exchange of ideas, of uh, testing things and dialogues where ideas can be uh, formulated, tested, um, discarded and created anew. And I think that's uh, your point about culture is very well made. I agree with you completely. Yeah. So would I, could I ask you, because you said that you wanted to move from technical consulting or consulting to uh, building complete companies to adding, bringing value to business. So can you tell us a bit more about the, um, uh, the, the, the triple chasm model? How, um, how, how does that work? Yeah, so, so Adelina, the triple chasm model actually came about uh, following about um, 15 years of our own experience. So when Cartesia first started, we were very clear about uh, several things. One was that we wanted to uh, turn innovation into, into real impact. So we wanted to uh, take innovations, which were largely science and technology-enabled innovations, but, but not exclusively, and we wanted to turn them into vehicles which had commercial value, in other words, complete companies, which would have products and services as the basis for that commercial value being created. And so we basically had uh, something like 12, 15 years of data, and we wondered about how uh, we might bring some sense to this data. And so in 2011, I became an entrepreneur in residence at the Judge Business School of Cambridge. And the project, if you like, I took in there was the idea that we would try and understand the process by which commercialization happens uh, purely from a data-driven perspective. So rather than rely on powerful anecdotes and uh, reminiscences from people about the things that mattered on a successful journey, which are all very good, uh, we decided that we would try and collect primary data on all the things that uh, enabled growth to happen so that we could have a more systematic view of how the commercialization process works. And that um, exercise, which lasted about five and a half, six years, uh, resulted in something called the triple chasm model. And the triple chasm model really basically, in very simple terms, uh, said, based on all this data analysis, that companies, when they, from, the, from the point which they start with an idea to the point where they become grown-up companies, uh, they, they go on a journey which can best be described by the, by the diffusion equation. Uh, so it's like you know, what, the way gases expand, etc. That's what diffusion works on. So the diffusion equation. But the critical realization from the data was that there were three hurdles on that journey, uh, three gaps or three chasms that companies had to cross on that journey. And so the first gap um, or the first chasm is really taking your conceptual idea and building your first prototype. And generally speaking, Cambridge has been very good at that. Most ecosystems have been very, very good at that. That first step is taking an idea and actually building the first prototype version of how a product might operate. Uh, the second chasm is the one which is the hardest and which uh, in hindsight now seems obvious, but, but, it, uh, but we identified it through our database research, which is the point at which you, so if you cross, when you cross chasm two, you basically are identifying your first charter customer. So these are customers who are actually paying you money and you're also figuring out your business model uh, because unless you do those things, you're not going to be able to scale your business. And then the third chasm is the actual, if you like, act of scaling where you're driving more channels, hitting more geographic uh, targets. But everything both comes down to that second chasm. And so the triple chasm model really underpinned everything we did. And then we 
worked with NASA's uh, technology readiness models in order to add a little bit more um, detail to the journey uh, from uh, from uh, initial concept all the way through to a to a commercially viable business. That's really interesting. So, would you be able to um, expand on a little bit on the third one? Because I understood it as being hitting targets and not not much else. Would you mind telling us a bit more about the third? Okay, so maybe I, I can. Uh, I'll talk about chasm three, which in fact turns out to be the same chasm that Jeffrey Moore referred to in his famous book in 1990 called Crossing the Chasm. And so, in fact, we borrowed the word chasm to describe these gaps. We borrowed the word from Jeffrey Moore's first book. Um, and what Jeffrey Moore was talking about was that's that chasm three is where you're really trying to take your product. You may have proven it in a particular market in a particular country, but you're trying to go, say, global with it. So maybe you've built a product that, uh, say, um, a mobile phone product, which you're selling happily in, in Britain or Germany, but you now want to take it into broader markets such as India and China, um, and how are you going to scale that? And, and so that, uh, that chasm three is really all the stuff that classical marketeers have referred to about finding the right landing point and expanding and, um, and all the literature from the Chicago School of uh, Marketing guys who talk about... Um, about the rules of marketing, about the rules of communication, uh, about promotion, uh, they uh, they rely on on, a, on on an existing market which has now been well defined and well understood. And the problem with chasm two is you at that point you may not actually have enough clarity in terms of knowing who your real target customers are going to be. So chasm three is where you drive volume. Really, you can drive volume, but you're very likely to use channels, distributors, resellers all the other people who will get, let you help your product get out to market faster. But you can't have those conversations until you have a sustainable product, sustainable business model, because no distributor will talk to you unless you're able to provide some evidence of that. And that's why I, I say that chasm two is so important and so critical. So, so, you know, there's a nice kind of overlap, I guess, with the mission of the Bradfield Center in trying to, you know, help scale these tech businesses with the work you're doing at the triple chasm model. Um, so it's a kind of two-part question, really. Um, I mean, why do you think that historically there's been so much attention placed on the startup phase of a company's journey rather than the scale-up phase, which is obviously where the actual value is created? And then, and then secondly, you know, why is it so hard to kind of to cross these chasms and actually, you know, build a successful business? Okay, so um, the, the first, the first um, thing to say is. Um, we, uh, we still have uh, very largely a binary view of the commercialization process. So let me explain what I mean by that. As you, I think you rightly talked about a lot of emphasis on early stage research, early innovation, getting started, scale-ups. Um, just in, for example, just the way that the research and innovation teams in the UK are organized and the funding, the way the funding works, very big emphasis on the creation of early value. Um, However, then what happens next is really the big question because the, um, this binary view is uh, reflected by the fact that all this money, this effort goes into getting started. But when it comes to trying to actually grow and build commercial viability, then um, partly for ideological reasons, partly to do with history of what's gone before, then the emphasis is tended to shift to uh, looking at things from the other side of the lens. And so 
all the stuff that you read about in um, 101 courses in business schools, etc., uh, about big successful corporations, about the need to get commercial pull through. So, so we have this curious situation where a huge amount of stuff goes in at one end, and the other end, we are then relying on commercial operations in order to uh, existing um, commercial operations in order to provide pull through the ideas. So the so the idea that these companies themselves can be should be making that journey across the middle part, if you like, of that journey under under their own steam and emphasizing their innovation um, is something that's still not. Uh, very well understood. You just have to look around the funding calls you see around Europe and, and uh, North America and even in Asia. And so um, the reason it's been ignored, uh, so so that so there's a so this middle piece, if you like, but where the real rubber hits the road, if you want to call it that, has been ignored. Um, and then the second part of your question, the reason it's so hard is because um, in the early stages, technology matters, innovation matters, and at these subsequent stages, you know that distribution matters, understanding market reach scale matters. But at chasm two, um, everything matters. And um, I should have said that the triple chasm model, I described this, this maturity journey. The other thing to talk about there is what we call the mesoeconomic vectors. So the question is, you're at a particular point um, and you need to move forward. So what can you do about it? And what can you do about it depends on understanding uh, what levers you can pull, if I can use an engineering analogy. What can I actually change? And, you know, the, the strange thing is Schumpeter was a famous Austrian economist. In 1948, he talked about how the really important stuff that economists needed to understand was in this meso layer, and they needed to understand these driving forces or meso vectors in that layer. Um, uh, of course, that's largely ignored in most economics courses everywhere in the world because most economists, some macroeconomists, who want to deal with high-level things like money supply, but it's the it's where the rubber hits the road. And these, we we discovered these twelve mesoeconomic vectors. Um, and if you look at the early stages, three or four of these vectors matter, and then you look at later on, uh, different four or five vectors matter. But at chasm two, everything matters. Everything matters from technology to product to intellectual property to distribution to market spaces, to customer identification, uh, to um, the ability to have a business model, which i.e. figuring out how you're gonna make, how you're gonna make money. So so that's why it's um, and that's why it's, that's why it's been so hard. So what's happened typically is when people are it's, there are several people who've now, if you like, uh, identified or uh, or um, recognized the scale up challenge. And the reaction has been to set up scale-up interventions, uh, but but most of them, I say most of them, have really consisted of just changing the label on the uh, on, on the door and carrying on as if they were still working with startups, and that's that's the problem, I think. So, so how are you taking this out to market? You know, how, how are you getting scale-ups familiar with the concepts and the tools and uh, and taking them through? Yeah, so it's 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 very interesting. So we uh, so what are our challenges? Number one is is actually educating people um, to understand that there's the, there's, that there has been this missing piece, and so the education is important because you've got to explain to people why there's a problem and what they might be able to do about it, and that has involved you know the usual uh, trajectory of uh, you know of people who come from academic backgrounds uh, like the ones at Trinity where we publish papers. 
we've published uh, two books. One was really trying to uh, outline the, the theoretical basis uh, for how science and technology enabled innovation happens. And then, then we, uh, that, that was called uh, a book called Camels, Tigers, and Unicorns, or subtitled Rethinking Science and Tech Enabled Innovation. And then we created a how-to version uh, called the Scale-Up Manual. Um, so that's one piece, is educating people, putting uh, tools in their hands. But fundamentally, um, if you really want to bring about change, then I think you have to address the three main, uh, call them the customers, who are going to benefit from these insights. And these three customers, the obvious one, of course, is all the companies themselves, the small medium enterprises who are going on this journey. And so uh, we're doing stuff with them. So, that, <clears throat> so that's one area. But, but they're a very large group, and uh, they're usually resource-strapped, so it's harder to help them. Uh, and by the way, that's another one of the reasons why we work so closely with the Bradfield, because it's a natural place from where we can reach these companies. The second uh, thing is really trying to work with the intervention agencies. Now, these are all these agencies or uh, uh, teams that are largely funded uh, by, by, by the public. Some of them are public-private partnerships, so... Organizations like Innovate UK and innovation agencies across Europe and North America, Asia, etc. So we've been working with uh, uh, a small number of innovation agencies uh, so that we're helping the innovation agencies to design programs, uh, scale-up programs that they can deliver to companies in their ecosystem because they have a vested interest in, uh, in delivering this value, if you like, to, the, to their own SME um, populations because they want to be able to uh, get bigger companies. They want to be able to demonstrate scaled up companies and to and to build future industrial champions in their own national territories. And then, of course, the third group in this is is the large corporations because um, most of the large corporations, I think, they've been to this phase of uh, recognizing the importance of innovation, um, and many of them have now realized that innovation isn't just a simple add-on. Because they've been through business about talking about how they need to be more innovative, how they need cultural change, and some of them have funded accelerators, which are very similar in, in character to some of the startup uh, accelerators that we've uh, that we've seen elsewhere. Um, so the corporates have a problem now because they now realise that the real key to future growth, especially if they're going to play in the green economy and in sustainable stuff, is they have to figure out how they actually harness innovation. Um, rather than talk about it and think that just bringing about a culture change will, will change everything. They need to think in how in structural terms they can work differently. And so that's what we're doing with working with corporates, is to help them to identify uh, ways in which they can interact with these earlier SME uh, companies and cohorts, how early they should get involved, how much they, sh they should support uh, fundamental research, how much they should support chasm two crossing, and, and how much uh, they may be involved financially um, by tailoring their M&A um, activity, their mergers and acquisitions activity, in order to harness this opportunity in the most profitable way for themselves. So, so that's, that's what we're trying to do. We're working with SMEs, we're working with intervention agencies, and we're working with corporations. Uday, you work with lots of scale-ups. What Top three tips do you have for Bradfield members who perhaps want to scale? Ah, okay. So that's a very interesting question. Um, um, in, in a sense, it's, it's a very broad question, but I'll try and give you my, my personal view. Um, 
for what the Bradfield members, how the Bradfield members should think about how they're going to scale their businesses. And I think the first thing is that being part of the Bradfield community uh, is something that they can really use in order to to be in the game. To to be to it's essentially you know there's this old um, uh, statement about you know if you're not playing if you're not on the if you're not on the same playing field if you're not on the playing field nothing's ever going to happen. And so the big power of of uh, being part of the Bradfield uh, ecosystem is to make uh, make all these connections and to be able to see what's going on. So one piece of advice would be engage, really engage with the ecosystem of the Bradfield, engage with the agencies, engage with other SMEs, engage with corporations, and engage with investors, uh, because all those people um, uh, are, are people you're going to need to talk to, and it can be very hard and expensive to try and reach out to these people directly as a company. If you, you know, it's like the, it's it's a bit like joining a club which has the right kind of membership and what. The Bradfield are trying to do is to build a club where all the kind of people that you might want to meet uh, with an easy reach. So that's that's the first thing. Then the second thing is to actually act in a much more focused way is within that club, um, you know, to um, to identify um, the the particular types of places, the things that you're going to want to uh, play in. So, for example. You might realize that what you're doing involves a lot of activity in the in the new changing um, system for bioscience. So, so bioscience is undergoing dramatic change. And for example, personalized medicine is going to be a very, very big thing. And yet there are very few personalized medicine companies today. But by being part of something like the Bradfield, it gives you an opportunity now to seek out and engage and have the debate say about personalized medicine in the new world of bioscience. So the second is about active engagement around particular market spaces and, and things that are going to matter. And then the third thing, I think, is really uh, focusing on CASM2 uh, because the Bradfield is actively involved um, with various people in trying to provide the environment in which people start to think about scale up more seriously. So it's going beyond the early a startup phase, but but actually started. So the third thing I would say is that if you, if you see the Bradfield as, as, as a place around which you want to do stuff, then focus on Chasm 2 and what it's going to take and uh, what resources you're going to need. Um, because that's one of the things that Trinity, the Bradfield, those of us who've been sort of involved in this journey have been trying to emphasize that you know, we want to create we want to create some scale, we want to create some champions so that some of these new larger companies can then put something back into the system rather than rely on on mature corporations who who have historically seen the science park as a place to rent uh, rent space uh, and to stay close to scientists. Mm, that's really interesting. So I mean we've, we you've covered a lot of uh, ground there, Uday, and and introduced some kind of some languages and terms around the triple chasm model. So, so where can people go to find out more about you know the work you're doing and the the frameworks that you have? You know, can they can they take an online course or something? And what what, what should they do? Yeah. So yeah. So we've um, we've got um, we've organ. I think we're sort of organising our activities around these three groups of people that we talked about. So for the SMEs, the SMEs, they're characterized by the fact that really bright, enthusiastic people who are fundamentally cash-strapped, okay? So that's the reality, and it's no different anywhere in the world, and even in Cambridge, uh, resources are hard to come by. Uh, 
And so for, for these people, we have actually uh, put together uh, all the basic tools and some insights around that into an online course, which we developed jointly with the European Institute of Innovation and Technology, EIT, and FutureLearn, which is, FutureLearn is a spin-off from the Open University who provide learning platforms. And so Cartesia, EIT, and FutureLearn have partnered to basically create um, a course, uh, an online course, uh, which, uh, which basically teaches uh, these key components, teaches them in the sense it introduces all the language, introduces the components, and provides practical guidance. And, um, and I'm sure um, as part of this process for the, for the podcast, uh, you know, we can, we can provide a link, publish a link, and, and you can go in and people can basically register and, um, and, and go on this online course. It's organized in a way that's suitable for SME time pressures. So it's basically uh, five uh, blocks of learning spread over five weeks with typically three to four hours of learning expected uh, from individuals per week. Uh, but we also have an online uh, moderation facility where people can ask questions and, um, and they can basically get facilitation and help. So that's one thing is to bring them into the fold. So that's, that's one critical piece in terms of uh, learning. It's, it's basically, it's a future learn course. And uh, it was launched initially in pilot forms around over periods of time. It's now becoming a permanent course from later this year. Uh, and it'll be access, accessible globally. Um, so that's one thing. And then when it comes to the intervention agencies, we are actually working closely with several intervention agencies to develop, uh, develop we're basically delivering scale-up programs, which are intense uh, coaching and support programs uh, with ecosystem access. Um, and we've done several so far. We've done stuff in AI-related um, uh, tools where we've covered healthcare in a number of ways, um, in, in Oxford and in Cambridge, and we have uh, covered the agri-food industry across Europe. We also worked with uh, IAs in India uh, on the biotech industry. So, so we have quite a quite a series of programs. And that's the other way is to think if you're if you're looking how do I play, look out for uh, information about some of these um, these programs we're running. Um, and and then the third is really. Um, watch the space. We are in discussions with various corporations and others about trying to accelerate um, thematically focused interventions, such as in personalized medicine, where we may need to bring together SMEs and corporations and research labs. And, and in particular, one of the things that we're doing at the moment, which is very topical, given uh, the strange world we're in now because of COVID-19, but we'd be looking at how we may be able to accelerate the process of vaccine development um, in a new ecosystem. And of course, that's really brought home the fact that it isn't just about the first phase of the journey, chasm one, of, of even just getting a working vaccine um, and then going and asking a big pharma company to sell at the other end. It's really a question of how do you manufacture, how do you deploy, uh, what are the new supply chains involved in, in shipping vaccines, how are you going to address pricing issue if you're looking for global affordable supply. So um, I hope at some stage to actually write about how all this stuff applied to COVID-19, good and bad. Uday, thank you so much for um, uh, explaining to us all the stuff you do and also the uh, history of the Bradfield, which is really interesting. Um, I I certainly also enjoyed hearing about uh, the the triple chasm model that um, is actually quite insightful because I I thought about that and I could identify those stages. 
um, having seen them in various startups um, that I've worked with across Cambridge. Um, I think I speak for both of us to say that uh, really, I really enjoyed the conversation. What, what do you think, James? Yeah, it's been fantastic. Th thanks for making the time, Uday. Much appreciated. So one, one parting thought for me, because I haven't mentioned this at all. One of the, one of the mesoeconomic vectors is about the deployment of human capital. And I think sometimes in the whole science-driven journey, we forget about the importance of human capital, the importance of culture, of leadership, or of um, the way teams are organized. And, and I think that one of the things um, that I know the Bradfield is going to be doing more of is helping to figure out how we uh, develop the next generation of people, uh, because ultimately the success of any scale-up will depend on having these people in place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, programs like the Trinity Bradfield Prize are, are exactly for those kinds of things. Precisely so, yeah. Well, that's great. Thanks again so much for coming on, and uh, we look forward to catching up in the, in the Bradfield Centre soon. Good. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for asking me. So hopefully the history section was was interesting for listeners. I don't think we've really ever spoken at length about the the origins of the Bradfield Centre and how it came to be. So uh, so interesting to get some insights from Uday, who was there at the time. Yeah, I found actually his three steps um, for for uh, the three three chasms that companies have to cross. Really interesting because I've noticed these in companies myself. Uh, you know, the building your prototype, then identify customers and figure out the business model, and then growth you know where are you trying to, to take the product globally and, and scaling it and i i've seen often companies get stuck on on chasm one building the prototype far longer than they should without checking in with potential customers if they can sell it so i thought it was really good he mentioned that i'm glad to hear that research over so many years backs up what uh, what i had been seeing in the in the field as well so it's nice to see that yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I think the tips that uh, Uday gave were also really insightful. Um, I think his point about engagement was a really good one. Uh, I mean, I say this a lot, but uh, the Bradfield Centre is so much more than just desk space. You know, we provide so many supporting services that sometimes people aren't even aware exist. So, um, you know, if you listen to some of our previous guests on the podcast, some many of them have taken advantage of things like having Cambridge Angels based in the building to help them with fundraising or networking um, we have relationships with you know a number of the major technology providers like amazon and google so you can get access to their people access to discounts um, there's obviously a very vibrant events program especially once we all get back into some sense of normality after covid um, so there's just so much going on inside the center um, over and above the provision of desk space so you know i loved kind of uday's point about just make sure that you're getting engaged and you're actually playing the game because that's the way to, to kind of scale your business and to grow your personal network. So you can find the show on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or by going to bradfieldcenter.com and you can find us under events and community.